Advent officially begins next week, so I'm calling this Advent Week Zero. Week one could be next week, but we are starting Advent a little early. I don't know if anyone's opposed to Christmas starting earlier than, than normal. Um, so we are going to begin Week Zero of Advent, the Candle of Hope, by reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Join me in reading together God's word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon in the way of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice because you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever walked in total darkness? Have you ever, in fact, let me ask you, what is the darkest you've ever been? I, for me, when uh, I had the opportunity to go to Israel for the very first time, we went into a, a passage under the walls of Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel. In Second Kings, it records that King Hezekiah had ordered that a small underground aqueduct be built so that water can come into the city, that they can have access to the water in case that there ever is a siege. And this is something that was noted in Scripture, but that archaeologists said, that's not there. You know, here we go again with the Bible and its claims. And then lo and behold, uh, about 100 years ago, it was discovered. And I've actually walked in it. And so uh, it's narrow. You know, you can definitely maybe about this wide, uh, and definitely uh, lower than my head is. I, I, I spent the whole time walking through this. There's times when the water is 6, 12 inches deep, and so you just have to wear flip-flops. And We're going in there, and about in the middle of the tunnel. So I don't, I don't know how you feel about tunnels, but you're surrounded by rock. The city, Israel, uh, Jerusalem is a city on a hill, so they had to dig down deep to get the water down through there. So you're just surrounded by rock everywhere. And our guide said, okay, everybody, turn off your light. And we stood in absolute, it was so dark, the guide said, put your hand like three inches from your face and see if you can see your hand. And you could see absolutely nothing. It was wild. I was really, I was playing it cool, you know, because your boy's got a reputation to uphold. But the truth is, I was really happy when we turned the lights back on and even happier when we got out of the cave and I could play it off as cool, total darkness. I don't know if you've ever 
walked in darkness. You know, sometimes I come into the bedroom, sneak in at night, uh, and uh, like tonight, Penn and I are going to go see the uh, Ravens play the Chargers, Penn's first football game. I'll come in at night. There's this little footstool that Lindsay puts at the bottom of her bed for our corgi to have access to the bed. Because if you <laughs> knock that thing down, the corgi's like whimpers and you can't get up there. So uh, it, it's for two things. One, it's for, for the corgi access to the bed. Two, it's to find my shin every single time to, to hit it. And there's something about walking in darkness uh, that is, you know, we, you realize how much you depend on your sight to get through the day. And so when Isaiah gives this vision of a light in the darkness, it's an image of somebody traveling at night, of, of navigating through a forest perhaps. Uh, we live in a time where the idea of being in darkness, uh, we, every, you know, we always have our phone, that, which has a flash. We, we're never in darkness. But to Isaiah's people in Isaiah's time, it, he's speaking to a sense of vulnerability, of danger, of walking at night, of hearing something in the forest, not knowing what it is. Uh, could be a wild animal uh, or a pack of wild animals. It could be a robber or thieves or uh, people on a horse of, of a growl, of, of footsteps, and seeing a light. What does light mean in a time of darkness? What does it mean to see a light and know that I'm headed now towards that light? I'm headed towards safety. In this great darkness, I've seen a light. Isaiah wrote in a time of great darkness. He wrote uh, and served the king in the king's court during a time of darkness. It was, it was a time after the kingdom had split north and south, the golden age of David and Solomon behind them, the idea of them being kind of a rising star in the ancient Near East, of, of being having legitimate army and wealth. Those days are behind, they're split. There's infighting, there's Assyria uh, and Egypt, and they're sandwiched in between, both of them wanting that, that valuable real estate that connected northern Africa to, to Europe and Asia for trade routes, uh, that, that knew, knowing that Assyria had their eyes on that, uh, that Egypt that, that had a strategic value, and then Israel deciding to play the uh, Game of Thrones Iron Age edition, where they are trying to appease Egypt, Assyria, uh, and to, uh, through intermarriage of marriage to foreign women, kings getting uh, political power and clout, uh, pagan worship coming in as a way of compromising and appeasing, um, and there's uh, political alliances with Assyria and Egypt during this time that were significant. So you have in there this anxiety. At any time, Assyria could decide they're not worth it, their, their tribute's not enough, Let's just go in and, and take control of the road that connects, that, that artery that connects northern Africa to, to Europe and Asia. It's so valuable for taxation purposes. Let's just go conquer it, or Egypt could have the idea in their head. And they're constantly playing this game with anxiety. And Isaiah goes before the Lord in this age of anxiety, looking for a word of hope. And God says to him, it's going to get bad. Then it's going to get worse. And then God will do something new. So it's an image of this mighty oak of Israel. It will be cut down. My people will be sent into exile. There'll be nothing but a stump. It'll be a time of grieving and lament. But then, out of this stump, something new will emerge. The Messiah will come and enter in Israel into a new golden age. So to a people 
asking questions like, will we be okay? What about our kids? Where our kids inherit a world where they are conquered, in exile, assimilated, um, forgetting the God of Israel, forgetting our, our culture and heritage, or will God protect us? And, and, and the, the word that Isaiah gets throughout the book of Isaiah will be, it's going to get bad and then worse. But then, in the darkness, a light will shine. It's one of the passages that I, I just read when Jesus talks about people having eyes to see and ears to hear, that he is assuming that people will read passages like this. It'll shape their imagination so that when Jesus emerges, they will say, as John testifies in John 1, the light has come into the world. In the darkness, the light has come. The darkness tried to hide. It tried to snuff out the light, but it could not. That's a reference to this passage, to the Jesus coming as the promised Messiah and having eyes to see him and ears to hear him. Generations waiting for Jesus to come, for the Messiah to come to them, waiting patiently for God to do something new. So, what can we learn? This, this, is, the, this is the point of the sermon where I tell you what we're going to be doing for Advent. How can we learn from the anticipation of the Messiah's coming that we might find hope in waiting for him to come again? Fleming Rutledge is among the greatest preachers around. And what she writes about Advent is Advent is a time of anticipating Christ's second return. She gives the image of, you know how when on you have your little nativity scene and then it's, the manger's empty until Christmas morning, you know, Christmas Eve, you put the baby Jesus in there and then you're, like, you're supposed to act surprised, I guess, I don't know, that you're supposed to, to say, yay, you know, he came again among us. Um, to, to live. And, and what she says is that's actually the wrong way to look at Advent. Advent is learning from how those who waited for Christ to come, because we are a people waiting for Christ to come again to us. That Christmas prepares us for Christ's second coming. That, that, that the time of anticipating God to come, send his Messiah to bring a lasting peace, we still are waiting for Christ to come and bring to us a, a lasting peace. And just as generations like Isaiah's waited for the Messiah to come, so too do we stand in solidarity with them, waiting for Christ to come and finish his work. Christmas is a time of celebrating when God sent his son to us to redirect human history. It's also a time of anticipating the completion of that work, knowing that our work towards justice and righteousness, as referred to here in Isaiah 9, are not in vain. That in the end, even if it's like Isaiah's day where things go from bad to worse before they get better, we know in the end that God will accomplish all that he set out to accomplish. Celebration, Christmas is celebration of God's faithfulness in the past as we anticipate God's faithfulness in the future. As we live in the shadow of division, the shadow of war, the fragile peace um, and ceasefire between Israel and Palestine, the ongoing escalation between Russia and the Ukraine, the civil war in northern Ethiopia that is causing um, so much bloodshed and harm, um, to our own country waiting in another political divided presidential election. 
that we live in a time where we can learn from how those in the past have cried out to God to move in their generation and time while anticipating the Messiah's arrival. How too can we learn from them that we, our hope is not in vain, that while despair and discouragement are so common to, for us day to day, to know, well, how can we have a hope that's deeper than our despair? How can we have a peace that's deeper than the unrest we see around us? And how can that resolve us to live faithfully in our time? Rutledge writes that Advent, Advent is the season that is, she said, Advent is the time that ought to be the most relevant to the daily life. It's the time when the hope we find of those who waited for Christ is the very hope we need to go through the very ordinary daily struggles to the extraordinary sins of our age, longing for God to come just as he did 2,000 years ago. We're Christmas people, not acting surprised that Christ arrives fresh every Christmas morning because we are always anticipating Christ's arrival and in, in interruption into our lives, both in small ways and then ultimately in the final way when all the instruments of war are burned forever. So let's, we're going to practice theology. Theology is one of those things that we think of as this abstract, believing the right things, knowing the right things. Um, but theology is always meant to, to be a lived experience. That, that our theology is the way in which our hearts are shaped to anticipate and see Christ, to see Christ among us. So the primary practice that we have to, to have our theology move from our head to our heart is prayer. So here my old school, you're going to see, oh yeah, our boy John was a middle school teacher in about one minute, but um, I want to give homework and practice that we can, this Advent season, find three things to pray for Christ to come and bring us peace. And as a former middle school teacher, I've got some arm motions that I would like to teach with you. So the first area is, and what I want you to think, where do you need peace in your household. So the first thing is, think through, as we long for peace, under your household. And by household, I don't just mean those who necessarily physically live under your roof, but those who are directly connected to you uh, as, as a family. That where, as you look at the relationships that are most important to you, where are those spaces where th there's darkness that you're looking for light, where there's despair where you need hope? The second is in our neighborhood. And so, the second thing, so the first one's very personal. The second one, a lot of us may agree to because it's the area both in our neighborhood or anywhere between your neighbor to our country. When we think about kind of our tribe of people, where are the areas where you are drawn towards despair and discouragement wanting to bring hope into? And then finally, the world. What are the parts of the world that are broken that you want to spend Advent crying out in anticipation for God to act. The broken spaces of our household, our community, and around the world. How can we, it's my own little YMCA, so I, the sixth member of the village people over here. Uh, I don't know how many village people there are, but anyway, think through those three areas where you need hope. Let's spend Advent praying, waiting, and watching for God to come, for a light to emerge in those dark places, and to further our imagination. I want to look at the four titles that Isaiah gives the Messiah. 
that they're to wait for, and then bring them into those spaces of brokenness in our house, our community, and the world that we want to bring and see God's light into. Um, I say bring. What I meant to say was waiting and watching for God to come to us so that we can uh, see it in our generation. So, wonderful counselor. When I first saw that word, I thought, oh, wonderful therapist. And I kind of went down that route. But what, um, which is, therapy is great. But what, and wonderful therapy is even better. But the counselor in this situation that, that Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus is the counselor that would be, we would think more of it as a cabinet member in the king's administration. An advise, a, a counselor is somebody who has the king's ear, who gives the king wise, good advice. Somebody worth listening to. And in Isaiah's day, the idea of the need of good information, of wisdom, was way different now than in the information age, than the Iron Age. There just wasn't access, should we go to battle? Will we win that battle? Should we form a treaty? Should we continue to pay this tribute? Are we getting enough taxation from that city 50 miles to the north? You know, all these questions re require good counsel. And so the first word that we have from Isaiah about the counselor, about the Messiah, is somebody coming to direct the affairs of this world through God's loving wisdom. That this counselor, somebody that you can look for, I I'm deeply indebted, I can't help but start talking about Dallas Willard when I talk about something like this, because one of the things he would frequently say is, Jesus Christ is the smartest person that has ever lived. And when you talk about intelligence and you talk about our Einsteins, our Plato's, our, you know, whatever smart, whatever you think of the word, when you think of the word smarter wise, says Jesus deserves to be in that company. That his intelligence, his advice, seeking him for advice, that he knows whatever area it is, like he does not, we don't put Jesus in the Department of Afterlife Affairs, we put him in the center of how we live our daily lives. And so that when Isaiah promises, wonderful counselor, he's saying, this is somebody that can be trusted and relied upon to all three of those things that you're thinking of right now. That when you are praying for your home, your neighborhood, and the, and the world, that you're coming before somebody who's a wonderful counselor, that has wisdom, advice, that knows the way of peace, that is offering a way of peace, and should be listened to. So the first one, wisdom. Second one, mighty God. Think about, so one of the things that we need to be careful about is Isaiah is not in this passage and referring to the Messiah as mighty God, telling us that Jesus, the Messiah, will be God incarnate. This isn't uh, the first inklings of the Trinity or of, God, of Christ's deity, even though I affirm those things. It's more like when Moses was delivering his people out of Egypt, and he came before the Red Sea, cried out to God, put his staff down, separated the waters, walked across the waters, put the staff down, closed the water over Pharaoh's army. That nobody went to him afterwards and said, Moses, I didn't know you could do that, right? Because he had, he was a vessel for God's power, but it was not Moses's power. And so when Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will come and he will be mighty God, think of it as Moses, who was a channel for God's power, somebody that God saw as trusted and trustworthy to hold his very power in the world. So if we're praying, and this Advent for three things, 
and we're trusting that God is that, that God's a wonderful counselor. We're also trusting that He is powerful, that we need not worry about God being overwhelmed or saying to us, I'm as lost as you are. That God comes to us saying, God of God, creator, saying, I have the power to accomplish these things. So when we pray, we pray with confidence. Everlasting Father is the third thing. This, again, is a reference to a parent's heart towards their children. That a parent will sacrifice anything for their kids. A good parent would, would do any of those things. That you could be the president of the United States. There could be a knock on the door, and the president will put aside the business of, of that office to welcome their child into that space. It's an image of covenantal loyalty, that this everlasting father is this Messiah will have the heart of the father for his people burning within him. It's an image of loyalty, of covenantal loyalty, that God will always put the needs of his people first and foremost. And so what we've learned is wonderful counselor, second, um, eternal God, mighty God, thank you, everlasting father. And all of that channels together to the role and title, Prince of Peace. Did you, in listening to that passage, in hearing of the instruments of war being burned and destroyed, not, we're going to put those aside in case we need them later, but the idea of the end of conflict forever. Did that move you? As you were hearing those words, I felt myself getting a little emotional. There's some deep part of me that longs for peace. And what the last title we have is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That the, the wisdom, the power, and the love of God directed through the Messiah to a lasting and everlasting peace. A peace that we can put our hope on for our family, our community, and the world. That when we come together praying, knowing that the Messiah, that Christ will come to end war forever, so much so that there won't be any need, they'll just all the weapons of war will be fuel for burning, they'll be repurposed into instruments of, of sowing and reaping and and harvesting, that that will be the end of war forever. That, he, that as we pray, and as we learn to pray this Christmas, to our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, knowing that he will come and bring us the peace that we seek. We are a Christmas people who look and study the way that God's people have anticipated the coming Messiah because we too are God's people. And we too are longing for Christ to return to us and bring an everlasting peace to us. So may you be filled with hope this Christmas, for Jesus will come again, just as he did 2,000 years ago, to finish his work and to set things right. And like the time of Isaiah, things may get bad and then worse before they get better. But as we are told over and over again in the New Testament, his time is soon. His return is coming soon. So come to the table this 
first Sunday of Advent, and as you return to your seats, think through those three spaces that you're crying out to God's peace to come. And pray through the lens of God as our wonderful counselor. Pray seeking his advice, seeking wisdom on what to do next. Um, that he has mighty power, that, that to use his power, it's an instrument, it's an interesting way to read the Gospels is to see the way Jesus' power is described and how he uses it. Jesus has a very unique and distinct way of holding power that is countercultural and counterintuitive. It's worthy of study that when we come to God and think and reflect on his power, it's not a smiting and destruction of his enemies, but it's because all power and authority have been given to him, Jesus stripped down and washed his disciples' feet. It's a power that's directed towards service, knowing that he is our eternal father, loyal to his people, and in the end, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, as the disciples came to Jesus, asking him to teach them how to pray, we too ask that you would teach us how to pray this Advent, that we would take the spaces in our, in our lives, in our communities, and around the world where our hearts are the most broken, that keep us up at night, that fill us with anxiety and despair. May we learn to pray to you, trusting, watching, waiting for you to come into our lives in small ways, and ultimately looking, watching, waiting for you to come and set things all right uh, in that final day when you come to live with us, your people, again, in a world fully restored. No more war. All instruments of war destroyed and burned, that your unending peace may come to us. Hasten that day, and until that day comes, may we be faithful to you. In Christ's name, amen. Come to the table.